0: This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the
1: world. Well, today on Dreamland, we have, first, a very special guest. Dr. Gary Nolan is with us. Uh, Second, a good friend. Uh, Gary and I have become friends and have been friends now for, gosh, about five years, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, uh, he is uh, one of the most extraordinary people I know and I'm sure you'll get to know him. He's been on Dreamland once before on a Christmas show where we spoke very briefly um, and he has dogs which may or may not be aliens, we're not sure. Uh, Gary is an immunologist. He's an inventor and a very successful and extraordinary inventor and out of that world of invention he's also a business executive who's founded a number of Companies. He holds the Rachel Rachford and Carlotta A. Harris Professor Endowed Chair in the Department of Pathology at Stanford University School of Medicine. He is, in other words, as heavy a hitter as we have in our scientific community nowadays, and he is also committed to understanding what is happening to those of us who are drawn into the close encounter experience? Gary, welcome to Dreamland. Great, always wonderful
2: to see you and talk with you.
1: Well, great indeed it is, and uh, we have to get together soon uh, again. Uh, we, it was all too short the last time. Now it's usually uh, at Esalen, isn't it? If- it is usually at Esalen, but yeah. But we, I, I'm going to come up to. I'd love to sit down with you and Jacques again and just over lunch and maybe spend some time together because we we come up with such interesting ideas, especially when we all get very strange, since we can do that when we're just talking together. And I mean, speculative, not, not uh, putting on funny hats or anything, but speculative. Okay. Now, basically, what we're going to be doing today, folks, is we're going to be discussing brains and brain differences and brain injuries and how this connects to the close encounter experience and to your lives. Um, And I think I would like to first get into the issues of people with brain damage and people with unusual brain formations. And let's talk first about How you, you were drawn into this, because that will segue into this, into this larger question. Uh, how did you first get involved in this really esoteric area of science? And and so esoteric that a lot of people don't even think it is science, even now.
2: Right. Well, I mean, the first, uh, the, the very first, um, entree to it was, you know, my work on the, the Atacama uh specimen that which i showed to be a human child likely preterm or immediately postterm birth with an unusual number of mutations in the um in bone forming genes which probably both caused the preterm birth as well as some of the unusual deformations of the bone structure um so uh but that was all done on my own initiative uh the sort of let's say being Brought to the attention of people in the government, um, and the, all the current stuff which is which is going on, was uh, really because at the time they were looking for somebody to do a, a deep uh, protein or single cell uh, blood analysis using a uh, an instrument that was actually originally developed by a guy by the name of Scott Tanner at the University of Toronto uh, as uh, sort of an, what we call an alpha model, and then he and I in my lab, his lab and my lab, worked together to turn it into a uh, tool for immunology. Um, and uh, it, But it, the, the, the utility of it was that it could look more deeply into the immune system than any other instrument, uh, you know, uh, at the time and still today, actually. Um, so, uh, apparently, when they were, uh, and well, the, the government uh, had found, uh, or had collected a number of patients who uh, had some kinds of injuries, uh, many of which, I shouldn't say many of which, well, en- enough of which were associated with observations or anomalous objects or UAPs or what have you. And, uh, that it was, I guess, worthy of coming and saying, okay, one of the things on the medical workup that we want to accomplish here is to look into the, the blood, to look for inflammatory events. Uh, and, uh, and so that was how, um, people associated with the CIA and, the, and an aerospace corporation ended up in my office, uh, and, uh, started discussions with me on it. Um, and I've, i told this story a few times. I think many of your listeners have probably heard that. Yeah, well,
1: let's get back to the Atac- Atacama piece. Uh, when that was first found, uh, I, I wouldn't, won't say found, but it was purchased in a bar in Peru. Uh, I had heard about it, and I, I wasn't interested in it because I felt like it, it wouldn't be what it was being claimed uh-huh. to be. And, uh, and that turned out to be true. But I was fascinated when you took up the challenge of figuring it out. Why did you do that? Because you came from such a highly developed scientific background, and here you were walking out there willing to put your reputation on the line uh, because if you had discovered that it was alien DNA or
2: something, you would have been in a major hot seat. Well, it was, yeah, I mean, part of it was, I can do that. Part of it was, you know, it interested me, and it was, you know, and, and even to Stephen Greer's credit, I mean, uh, you know, it was it, it, it was worthy of looking at, without doubt, um, because of some of the stories that were associated with it. Um, and so, you know, at frankly, I thought at first that it was uh, some sort of a, a, a monkey of some kind, but uh, you know in bringing it to literally the world's uh leading specialist in uh bone disorders pediatric bone disorders uh and his take on it was uh thank you and his take on it uh was that um well this is clearly it's it's human uh it it has uh several anomalous features that uh I can't explain by my understanding of current genetic disorders but it could be a combination of them I and mean, and he's he's looked at thousands of such things. Uh and but he did list a number of genes that he thought might be associated with it and actually some of the genes that he suge- suspected ended up being the case so having mutations in them. Um but I mean the the impetus was partly high risk high gain uh, and that you know, sometimes it's worth doing it. It was a bigger job than I thought it was at the beginning. Um, I think that's probably one of my uh, faults is that I bite off more than I can chew, uh, often scientifically. But that's the fun of it.
1: Yeah, but you're a high risk, high gain kind of guy. I mean, that's why you're so successful.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's I mean, your, that's uh, your uh, mo. That's my mo. I oh, guess. Right. Yeah. So. Exactly. I, and but I mean, part of it was it was I was starting to read things on the internet uh or you know there was enough kind of noise around the uFO phenomenon that it was like well i don't and I didn't see anybody doing the kind of science that could be done on these things yes uh, to truly answer the question in a definitive manner right uh and uh you know, and as we got into it, as i said i i it wasn't I wasn't knowledgeable enough to be able to do it, but, you know, I had started a company that we sold to Roche for $110 million on uh, sequencing uh, analysis of of, uh, genomes, and so I was able to bring them in, uh, a number of uh, Stanford individuals, two Stanford Stanford professors, one of whom was a specialist in South American DNA. Uh, the tribes and uh, cultures. Uh, so I knew then that once we had results, I would have the right combination of individuals who could look at this objectively and give us uh, an answer. Uh, and so that was the result of the paper, which, you know, resulted in the paper, which ended up going, you know, literally worldwide. I was getting phone calls from all over the planet. Because what better clickbait than alien scientists? Sorry, alien science, Stanford scientists. Uh, you know, sequences alien baby.
1: Right. The yeah. uh, and in Stephen Greer's defense, he had every reason to believe that this thing was something very unusual when he yeah. bought it because of the way it looked. So you know, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not trying to.
2: I don't. I don't fall through one bit for that.
1: No, me neither. I would have done the same thing. And I would have also been disappointed when
2: the result came out. Um, I, I mean, there was the moment about halfway through um, when, you know, I was starting to get some strange results in the sequencing or what appeared to me to be strange results that I didn't understand, um, where I thought to myself, I remember driving uh, down the road one day and say, gee, what happens if this is alien? Yeah,
1: you know, exactly. Then you've,
2: you're on the that hot
1: seat and you've also made history.
2: But then, I mean, that's kind of the moment when I realized, okay, Gary, let's, let's make sure you're, you're not the world's expert in human genetics. So let's bring in the world experts, right? I mean, that was why I brought in the world expert in bone disorders. Um, you know, I think good science is realizing what you're able to do, but then having the ability to convince others who are expert to lend their time to a question, yes. uh, to combine the knowledge and the best abilities of all. Um, and it was, you know, it was all about getting the, some of the most, you know, fantastical, uh, claims, uh, either on or off the table. And because once you get the things that are drawing everybody's attention, it's usually the stuff that's hidden in the corners that is the true answer, is the true, you know, lead, Uh, and so um, that's one of the things that I've tried to focus on in my career, is paying attention to the dot which is off the curve, that is, most people would be willing just to pass by as a a data artifact, and it might be a data artifact, but I want to know how it got there.
1: That is uh, a really, it's a great way for a scientist to work, and Free Dreamlanders, we're going to take a little break right now, and we'll be right back.
0: Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition, very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us. Because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me. It's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it and I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion, listen to it, read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. Where is the unknown country? Is it out there? in the stars or is it also somewhere else is it in us in you unknown country join us today go to unknowncountry.com right now and join us join the questions join the search Join the adventure. UnknownCountry.com. There's no place like it in the world.
1: One of the things that you must have come up against uh, is this issue of secrecy, which is so extraordinary. Uh, I have many times in my life uh, ended up in a, in situations where I was told things I was then told I could not repeat, and mm-hmm. in a couple of occasions I was attempts made to force me to get a security clearance, which I wouldn't do because then I would then other people would be making the decisions about what I couldn't couldn't say, and obviously I can't do that. And y- y- you were brought into this by CIA people, uh, uh, Christopher Green, Kit Green, uh, uh, also a good friend of both of us at this point, point. Uh, and you found yourself up against a wall of secrecy and beginning to be allowed to peek behind it a little bit. What was that like, and what did you think you were dealing with when you saw, you must have seen how enormous it was, and how... In a way, impoverished it is.
2: Yeah, I mean, it would be funny because, um, you know, in, in my stream of science, my area of science, um, you know, when you ask for more data, the only thing that should ever stop somebody from giving you that data is that they haven't published a paper yet on it or that they think that the data needs to be further verified before they, before they let it out. Um, you know, and siloization of data, uh, especially post-publication, is considered anathema uh, and couldn't get you banned from publishing in a journal if you refuse to, you know, uh, share your data or your reagents or your methodologies when somebody asks. So um, being in a situation where I would ask for more data about, Uh, an individual in a, you know, who was part of this cohort of injury patients, I would just very often be told, well, we can't, we can't tell you where that person is. We can't tell you what they were doing. Um, you know, it's, you know, and so that was, that was frustrating. Um, but we did reach a kind of compromise that, uh, allowed us to, um, to uh, get the, the right kind of data into uh, a, a format that could be shared. And, you know, because these were patients, there was an incredible amount of HIPAA compliance that needed to be uh, brought to the table, especially since I had asked to, you know, meet with some of the, these uh, individuals, and so therefore I knew who these people were um and their careers might be at risk because they were in some ways breaking their oaths or things that they were told not to talk about and so uh for me that was a little bit of a difficult thing but i mean these days especially if you do the kind of work that i do in the mainstream science hipaa compliance is beaten into us uh with yearly tests of our knowledge you know, we sit on the, I sit on these online things for an hour, you know, learning and relearning and taking the tests to make sure that I, I know all the ins and outs of what you should and shouldn't say. So, but, you know, I, I, I think that the, the secrecy has merit, but I think what we've seen, I mean, how many years is it now? 80 years since the 1940s, you know, we're almost coming up on 80 years, and we still don't have common discussion amongst scientists Um, you know, uh, about these phenomena. Uh, you know, I think that Enough is enough. Yeah, we we don't just not have common discussion,
1: but we have in the Intellectual media or the the like the new york times level media We have a very great level of hesitancy and you know, they're just edging toward it and they're the only ones. You don't see many of the other, you don't see articles, searching articles in places like the Atlantic or Harper's, uh, exploring whether or not there may be some credibility here, even now. And the close encounter witnesses are like, uh, anathema. I mean, we, it's like we are a non-people. Uh, we don't exist.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There was, as you know, a big, uh, big, uh, Show planned this for the summer. It's the time has gone uh, on CNN. It was completely finished, and uh, you were interviewed for it. I was interviewed for it, and it was a very high-level show, and it was completely totally canceled.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what is going on there? What is there? Some kind of? Do you sense? I know I, this is not a question I'm asking you to answer factually. Mm-hmm. But I sense the presence of some kind of social engineering locomotion behind this. It's as if somebody doesn't want any of this to happen. And I'm not sure whether it has to do with us or some other level of reality. It's just extremely strange.
2: No. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't know. I mean, certainly the disinformation campaigns that we all know exist uh, and have been admitted to be existing. So it's not like it's a conspiracy theory. Um, you know, that's, uh, you, you, you know, we can worry about the tinfoil hats for other subjects, but certainly not that. Um, the hall of mirrors that unfortunately people like Doty helped to create, um, is, uh, is a problem and I think we'll be disentangling them for decades more. Um, y- you know, I, and it's, and it's one of the reasons why, and I've stated this a few times now, It's not that I want to dismiss the historical data uh, and or not argue about it. It's just it's not my it's not my specialty. My specialty is is not retrospective analysis. It's prospective analysis of data that we create now that is verifiable.
1: Well, uh, you know, you're that's just as well, because I don't think I think the history of this has been lost. At largely, and it's because everyone from Arthur Exxon to people we both know now have uh-huh. told me about Pencils Up, that there was much of this material, and still is. When a discussion enters a certain phase, no uh-huh. one can take notes, let alone uh, write any, any 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 anything down about it. Uh, so... I think it's a, it's a lost history, probably. So you're just, you're just as well that you're on the leading edge of what's actually happening now. Because I don't think you have a past anymore. I think it's been, it's been made to disappear largely. Uh, right. I know that there are briefings that go through material from the past, but I'm not so sure that, that a lot of the material, like for example, the entire, uh, production of of uh, records from Roswell Army Air, Fo- Air Army Air Force Base and then Army Air and then Air Force Base from 1947 to 1952 was lost mm-hmm. supposedly or immediately destroyed mm-hmm. every single paperclip requisition everything and when Congressman Schiff told me that he wanted to get this and he said you, you know I said you it won't happen. He said, "Well, I'm going to go to the DAO to get it," and I said, "It won't happen," and it didn't. And I was, I was very sad. Okay, but let's now let's go now back to the present. I'd like to talk about the defense funding bill, and because there's some major uh, advances in that bill, and I, I know that you 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 know about them. So, can you talk about uh, what has changed and what Congress is now? make demanding of the Defense Department?
2: Well, I mean, the first thing that changed was, in fact, a couple of years ago with the Navy, um, where they basically put out a memo that said to uh, service members, pilots, et cetera, that, uh, you know, we would like it, please, if you reported this information, things that you might see. Um, And part of that was interestingly driven by a concern that, you know, if a an opponent, right, a, a global adversary of some sort, not UFOs or aliens, were to make an object that looked like a craft, an alien craft, somehow, and caused it to fly, and not that it was flying like, a you know, 5,000 miles an hour or anything, um, that it would almost be like a stealth approach to do things because pilots would not report it. Right, and so that was kind of a concern. Uh, one of the one of the concerns. So th- they were saying at the first at the first level, well, let's report things that we see, anomalous or otherwise, uh, and uh, and and so that then became, I think, the beginnings of the break in the dike, uh, where then more information started coming out from the inside, including the stuff that um, obviously that Lou and Chris had already brought out that caused that memo to to be written um, and there just became this kind of groundswell and I think a really key moment was that sixty minutes interview where they had the pilots sitting down recounting their tales and I think the integrity and truthfulness and emotion that came across in those interviews just changed things uh, and then that led uh, to Chris and Lou uh mostly spending time on the hill um but you know Chris and Lou will be the first people to say that there are any of a number of people who are still scattered throughout the governmental processes uh, that similarly are wanting to bring all of this information forward um and so that then led to the Bills which have been put out. The first one, of course, was the 2022 defense budget, which established the UAP Task Force, uh, office or ASLOG or whatever they were calling it, uh, that get renamed about five times already now. Um, and, uh, and, and that was essentially saying, you know, look, we're gonna, we're gonna, this will be the place to collate data and information. But then what was almost immediately observed was that the pushback from the DOD was, okay, well, we see a bunch of loopholes here where we don't have to do what you think you wanted. Uh, and then that was emblematically displayed uh, by uh, in the congressional hearings, where uh, the two people who were brought forward, who were ostensibly the heads of uh, service divisions that should be knowledgeable of this, were not knowledgeable of it, or claimed to not be knowledgeable. I don't think they were lying. Uh, but it's been this very, uh, you know, purposeful approach by whoever's running things on the inside to put people forward who don't know anything about it. But what I found uh, disingenuous about those two individuals, unfortunately, was that they said things that, impl- that implied in a way that nothing existed, when really what they were saying was, well, the OAP Task Force doesn't have any of that information, and we don't have that information. The way it came across or was in, attempted to come across was that, that that information doesn't exist, and it's all somebody's fantasy.
1: That and also the impression that's been left in the media that this is all sort of new, mm-hmm. that, you know, that it sort of started in, the, in 2004 with the Gimbal incident, when, in fact, if you read uh, the Twining Memo, uh, the flight characteristics being described of these objects in 1947 are exactly the same as the flight characteristics seen in the gimbal and tic tac videos. So they've been yeah. around for years and years and years. And free dreamlanders, a lot of you have been around for years and years and years too, but you've never subscribed to this show. Uh, do it now. You won't, you won't never hear uh, Gary Nolan talking like this. In any other show because there's no one else who does it this way and you know that and I know that so keep it going it's not because you get more as a subscriber it's because you get the site at all so do it my new book
0: Jesus a new vision is not a Christian book it is not an anti-christian book either very much not an anti-christian book it is new genuinely new a look at Jesus in his life and what happened afterwards, his resurrection, for the Shroud of Turin is no medieval forgery. It goes all the way back and it does record an extraordinary event that appears to have been a body transforming into a form of coherent light. The science is very strong at this point. And yet, how could that be? What an extraordinary mystery. The life of Jesus is mysterious indeed, but the greater part of the mystery is about us. How is it that a human body could transform in that way? Who accomplished it why did it happen what does it mean to you and me about our lives now Jesus a new vision a new window into a very old way of looking at the truth a way of finding ourselves perhaps that we lost a long time ago, but can recover. Jesus and New Vision is available in Kindle format, as a paperback, in audiobook format on Audible and Apple, and as a Kindle and paperback on Amazon. Do go and get it today. This is Whitley Strieber. Listen to me now from June of 2010 talking to Alan Lammers about an incredible thing that happened to him on the island of Sulawesi in Indonesia. Here you are in South Sulawesi in the little town in the district of Sandu Batu. You were what happened? You were told something rather strange.
2: Well, we were told before we went, um, like my my friends that I work with in with the NGO. They told me that when you pack, because it kind of happened by accident, I went out to buy a raincoat. It rains quite a bit in this part of the world, and so I went out and I bought a yellow raincoat. And my friends said. I'm sorry, you can't, you can't take that to Walla Walla. And I said, well, why not? And he says, well, it's th- you can't
1: wear that color. So anyways, excuse me. So I thought, okay, well, what colors can I wear? They, they said, well, you can only wear black or white.
2: You cannot wear any bright colors, no bright green, especially no yellow, and, you know, that's all you should bring. And I, and I said, well, what would happen? And they said, well, uh, people disappear.
0: You will find the rest of that story, and it is brain-bending, in the June 5th edition of Dreamland, June 5, 2010 edition of Dreamland in the com archive. This archive is one of the richest of its kind in the world, probably is the richest of its kind in the world, filled with extraordinary shows of which this show is certainly one, this show with Alan Lammers. You will never have heard anything like it. It does what Dreamland is here to do. It opens your mind to the fact that we live inside a hidden reality that we prefer not to acknowledge, but not here on unknowncountry.com we do acknowledge it we live in it and we love it subscribe today you can't go wrong go to unknowncountry.com right now and get started
1: so now we look come to the uh, appropriations act of 2023 Uh, the uh, weasels have weaseled out so far, what has, what are they facing now if there's been some major changes?
2: Right. So, um, you know, the questions from the committee, the congressional hearing were pretty pointed and I think the, uh, the two defense establishment individuals and intelligence people who are sitting there, uh, were not prepared for the, the pointedness of the questions and the clear frustration of the committee members who knew more about what was going on than the supposed experts. And so what ended up happening was, and then there was also a lot of talk behind the scenes that I knew of, where people were pointing out how the prior language wasn't really uh, imprisoning, the Department of Defense and intelligence agencies into actually providing anything, and that there was actually reports from the inside that some of the the keepers of the gates were giggling at how they were gonna easily, you know, get around this. Um, And so uh, I participated in briefings of some individuals on the inside, wrote a little white paper. I mean, nothing extraordinary, but basically laying out the consequences of doing nothing uh which is you know giving the opportunity for our global adversaries to perhaps get ahead of us in certain kinds of technology or understandings um but you know on the positive side the virtuous cycle of technology development that led to the current lead the United States has in computers and uh and uh, other things could be recreated perhaps by a deep understanding of what these objects were so there was that kind of tension going on so, how do you accomplish that? So, the the uh, you do that by bringing down the barriers, by exposing the information that was prior available. So, the new Defense Appropriation Act, Intelligence Act, has in it. All right, look, we're going to go all the way back to 1947. We're going to collect the data. We're going to, you're going to give us all of the data, bar none. And if you don't give it, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to give us all of the NDAs, and I found that to be a fascinating uh, strategic move because the NDAs are going to have information on them that says what program they're associated with. disclosure
1: agreements, folks.
2: Right. Go ahead. It's going to say what program they're associated with it, who signed it, and who the authorizer was for that NDA. So it it basically unveils uh, a program and the control structure around that program. And the other thing that this, uh, it says it's fascinating is, and you're going to tell us all of the disinformation and attempts to mislead the U.S. public and why it was being done. You know, there's good reasons for disinformation. Yeah. But there's also bad reasons for it. Um, and so, you know, those two things at the least were, uh, moves to stop, stop the escape routes. That had become apparent in the first Gillibrand uh, language, um, but then they've, they've gone further. So part of the white paper that I wrote, and I don't know that my comments were the instigator of the inclusion of this verbiage in the in the bill, was I said, "Look, it's time to bring in academic scientists, you know, appropriately, uh, cl- you know, classified uh, information. You know, they they get." Uh, clearances, et cetera, um, so that we can, um, you know, bring the, the the greater intelligence of a, a larger community to the table. Um, and, you know, believe it or not, there's all kinds of barriers to this. I mean, for instance, at Stanford, um, I spoke to the deans about this recently, uh, about this kind of stuff. They said, look, you're not allowed to do any classified work. Yeah,
1: well, that's right. And, you know, this is going to be a problem because we desperately need, we've needed better minds involved in this, but they don't exist. You know, the, the people think, oh, behind the scenes are all the geniuses. This is very far from true. We're looking mm-hmm. at one of them right now, and he's not behind the scenes, is he? And, no, and, I'm not. And,
2: yeah, and if you... i as close behind as you can get, but not, you know, not behind
1: Yeah, well, you're not legally constrained by a security clearance at this time. And I, we have to figure out, it seems to me, a way to uh, draw people in the sciences who are not, like you, who are not going to be involved with security clearances, but who need to know, uh, we need, who need to know some of the classified information? We need another level of some kind uh, of uh, of access. Let me put it that way.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think it's coming. You know, there's uh, the, the the language that will be that has been put in basically tells the intelligence agencies uh, to create a structure that allows um, academics to get involved. You know, appropriately vetted academics. Yes. Um, you know, that will frankly sign NDAs, uh, and, uh, you know, for all the, for all the right reasons. Um, but, uh, basically, th- this kind of language has never been seen before in 80 years of the, uh, of us arguing about the reality or irreality of this. Yeah, they've had completely,
1: they've been completely un regulated on uh, they've been allowed to do exactly what they wanted to do from the very beginning and yet you know uh art exon told me first uh, early on the uh he was later uh com- commanding at uh, Wright pat and he was p- participated in the acquisition of the bodies and materials that came to the air material command and he was also a close family friend of mine, of my family, and he said early on, uh, everyone from Truman on down knew what we had found was not not of this world within 24 hours of finding it. And here we are 80 years later and we're still in the public space, not sure. Mm -hmm. And when I think of what someone like Stephen Hawking could have done, if he had really been able to think about this, it just breaks my heart.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, and um, you know, it's a, I mean, it's not criminal in the legal sense, but criminal in the intellectual sense uh, to have wasted so much time on it. Um, But, I mean, more so I worry about the careers that were ruined uh, of those people who wanted to get it out and then were shoved aside um, or lost their jobs because of it. And so, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to fix that, nor am I looking for reparations. Uh, nor do I think the government should pay them um, necessarily, uh, unless somebody can prove I, why. I suspect there are more reparations, owed than the government
1: can afford to pay, even though it's a very government. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> there enough for a variety of things. Yeah, that's um, right. Um, so yeah. so we're, we're in a situation now where the door will be opening to the Senate Intelligence Committee, but there's nothing to say that what they are told is going to go beyond that and here's the problem i see i've had a lifetime of close encounters and most of my listeners have too we are the elephant in the room and if say it becomes evident to the senators and to the uh, to the intelligence house and senate intelligence committee members that what is being hidden is the fact that people's DNA, their sexual material, are being taken, and there is nothing whatsoever we can do about this, and we don't know why it's being done or what the consequences are, or what the consequences are for the people who have disappeared or the people who have uh, been injured in various ways. I refer, for example, to the Cash Landrum incident, where these two poor people who were basically killed by radiation Uh, in a a UFO incident outside of Houston were basically laughed out of court. All of that. Would Mm -hmm. they then take that to the public, do
2: you think? Or will it remain hidden? I, I don't know. And you know, I, I again, I, I sort of I'm going to retreat to the it's not my specialty. There's so many. I understand
1: many, that very well. You know,
2: there's so many um, people who've been arguing about these things for decades. You know, one of the things when I would get together with, you know, sort of the the invisible or now visible college of, you know, me, Jacques, Hal, Eric, a few others, you um, and I would even watch them argue with each other about the, you know, the merits or demerits of a set of cases that I frankly knew nothing about, so I was really just a bystander to to the arguments, and uh, I just thanked my lucky stars that I didn't know too much about them, uh, so I I wouldn't get involved in the argument emotionally or otherwise, Uh, and that I, I could just basically lay on the table, these are the things that I can do that can serve up new data that is controlled for, you know, scientific analysis.
1: And I think the position you're in, you should, and I'm, and I'm sure you, you you're, this is exactly what you are doing, you're very much concentrating on data that's available to you now. Um, now Free Dreamlanders, we're going to take what I'm sure you'll be relieved to find is our final break. Now, it will last no more than 45 minutes, um, but it's most likely to last about 35 seconds. So we'll be right back.
0: Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition. Very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me. It's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format, and believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories, into it, and I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion. Listen to it. Read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. The UNX Network delivers quality paranormal programming video and audio streams, all kinds of shows. Jimmy Church is there. Dreamland is there in the free version. So go to unxnetwork.com and you'll receive your monthly newsletter, blog access, event notices, and a free digital copy of their quarterly magazine. How can you go wrong? Check it out, Mm unxnetwork.com. We're talking
1: to Dr. Gary Nolan about... Well, about many, many things, and one of the things that brought you into this was an issue involving brain injuries. Christopher Green, Kit Green, uh, the, and you can tell us a little bit how, who Kit is, and, um, uh, came to you basically with some, case, some very unusual cases. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Right. So um Kit uh was a uh basically a member of the CIA for a number of years. Um and uh is a neuroradiologist, a forensic um neuroradiologist. Uh that's his sort of say day job and he's an adjunct professor at Wayne State University. Um with a clinical practice. Uh and what he essentially uh, started getting involved with are these individuals who everybody else was ignoring or the Defense Department didn't know what to do with them. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's an extraordinary physician and spent enormous amounts of his personal time and, you know, reputational, uh, uh, you know, uh, efforts on helping these individuals. Uh, and trying to understand, and that was, of course, one of the reasons why I was brought into uh, all of this. Um, and so, the most compelling data to me, uh, when uh, the data, as much as they could show me, was was brought to me, were the uh, MRIs of the of the brain. And as they've been shown, you know, I think many times now, uh, the white matter disease that. Uh, was observed in these individuals, uh, which ended up in some of the individuals uh, leading to their death. Um, now, subsequently, uh, and it's a whole other story unto itself, um, you know, a number of these individuals who were in the so-called weird bucket of the forensic cases uh, of injury ended up being indistinguishable uh, symptomatically from... Uh, Havana syndrome, which is, I think, your readers or listeners have uh, already know about it, so I won't go into it. So I, I would say that the bulk of the cases were then able, we were able to pass them over to the um, to the government agencies who were dealing with the Havana syndrome, um, which for me is, you know, part of the scientific process, which is categorize uh, and uh basically if you understand what it was we understood that some of these people were Havana syndrome passed them off to somebody else who was dealing with it and then but still what remained on the table um was interesting because actually suddenly we had injury cases where as it turns out there was a concentration of reports within these individuals of anomalous encounters most of the other cases that Havana had heard things uh buzzings in their heads and things like that which you know we didn't associate with uh any kind of electronic attack which is what we now think the havana syndrome is um by some third party uh and so uh you know so there's there's very little that we could do about the injury cases except try to treat their symptoms as much as possible um, but part of it was, you know, to at least give the assurance to these individuals that it was well, what they were seeing was real, to help them get the kinds of medical benefits that they deserved. Um, but then uh, part of the analysis as we were looking at things, it became obvious when we had, you know, a number of these scans up on the um, up on the presentation that. Uh, there was a pattern that we started to see in some of the what we thought was at first injury um that an area of the brain called apotainment uh had uh it looked like damage and we thought oh that's really interesting there's focused damage in one area of the brain well you know there's ways you can look at different M- mris with different um uh, settings if you will uh, that showed in fact that it wasn't damage it was live tissue um, and it was it, you know, it, it manifested as a as a, uh, a whiter area, not because it was dead or um, damaged, but because it was had a higher concentration of uh, neural connections at the head of the caudate and putamen. And so uh, I went to almost immediately some friends of mine here at Stanford uh, and asked them, well, what is it in in who are in? the neurofield. Well, what is it that the the basal ganglia caudate cutamin do? And they said, Oh, it's it's involved only in motor control. And this was someone who'd gone to Yale and, you know, undergrad in Harvard uh, for med school. But um I guess uh really wasn't up on some of the current literature because it started to be, you know, in the literature it started to become understood that, well, if it's about motor control you need a feedback mechanism to know where your arm is to be able to put it where you want it to be. You know, I can close my eyes and move my hand, and I, I have a sense it, where it is because there's feedback systems within here that help me uh, locate myself in 3D space, um, which means that this area of the brain was listening to a lot more. It was actually listening to things, not just outputting things. Um and so it became a pattern of that. Okay, this—all these individuals have this. What's special about these individuals? You know, so you had pilots, you had physicists, you had uh, ground personnel. Um, well, the one thing you have is that they're all high functioning. Um, and it was Kit who basically put this together. You know, he used the word savant, but I think high functioning is a, is a, a better. Um, easier descriptor that you don't have to spend too much time defending what, it's, what a savant is, um, and because uh, a lot of people have a certain picture in their mind of what a savant is, um, and and then okay, well, what is it about these individuals that what why would they have this, and what is the what is the purpose of it, and it was purely I think by chance that Kit happened to have the um, brain scans. Of a couple of people who were known or claimed, I'll use the word claim, uh, high, high functioning remote viewers. Um, and so I just, I just remember the meeting that we were at. And it was me, Jacques, and, and, uh, and, uh, Kit that were kind of going around on this and, and they said, well, what is it about remote viewing that is high functioning? Uh, well, it's a form of intuition in a way. Cause actually, what we were looking for, to be honest, is a word that said kind of what it is that remote viewing was without calling it remote viewing. And the word is intuition. Okay. And then we realized, oh wow, this area of the brain might be actually where intuition happens. And so it only took a little bit of, uh, of, uh, Google searches. Thank God for Google. Uh, to realize that actually there was already mainstream research out there uh, saying that, well, not only was this area of the brain involved in intuition, it was downstream of the executive function, was now called by some the brain within the brain. Uh, the executive function gives this area of the brain its desired goals somehow, passes them on. This area of the brain... Collects all the data and your sensory network of where you are, et cetera, in 3D space, sound, hearing, memory, emotions, and then sets goals and sub goals of what it is that you should do, um, in any given situation. Uh, and so then you're know, asking, go, well, how does that relate to remote viewing? Well, and then if you talk and read about remote viewing, um, and I did a remote viewing once with Ed May, it was re- remarkable what happened and I won't go into the details of it, but um, it was clear that uh, they were there are if you read about all of this stuff, there are visual signals that happen or are seen by some people. And so it's like okay, I was interested in all right, this is, this is fine. there's lots of books written about the woo of it. but like Ed May, I was interested in the science of it. I uh, say, okay, okay, so if there's neurons that are collecting this information, Is there an area of the brain that does this? Well, no one's ever seen anything like this, and certainly there's been no evidence, you know, of brain damage that uh, would say suddenly people lose a certain ability that might be related to remote viewing. Um, But if you were to think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, how would you overlay and get anomalous information that is not, in our normal expectation of 3D, of uh, of electromagnetic spectrum into the brain, um, well, maybe you would overlay it somehow, I don't know how, somehow onto the the, uh, already in place visual or auditory uh, networks, um, and that that would be the way in which information somehow got transferred. Somehow it has to be then turned into a picture, but I mean that's as big a problem as a dream, right? That, yeah, I how do understand that very well? How do dreams get put onto your internal uh, viewer, right? You have two. You actually have two visions. You have your vision that we're using right now to see each other, but we can each close our eyes and imagine the other person uh, or any other object uh, in our mind's eye
1: right and well free dreamlanders speaking of the mind's eye uh, I don't know what the segue is but it's still time for you to leave and we're going to uh, say goodbye to you now and I would like to thank you as always for participating in dreamland and I welcome you to come back next week you've been listening to
0: dreamland be sure to tune in again next week Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.